Blog Talk Radio. What's up? What's shaking? How you doing? I'm Brooke Hines, and I'll be your host tonight on Progressive News Network. It is Sunday, April 19, and we are five weeks into the quarantine at Swampy Jays. An uh, exciting thing happened this week. We got toilet paper at the store. And that is all that happened exciting this week. But we do have quite a show for you. I'm, I'm actually very excited about the show. It's not only exciting, it's packed. Uh, we have Janine Moloff. This is super cool. Janine Moloff at the bottom of the next hour at 8.30 Eastern. Uh, she interviews noted scholar Marjorie Cohn on the weaponization of COVID-19 in U.S. foreign policy, especially as regarding the sanctions against Iran and Venezuela, which are killing thousands right now. Um, any other time in history, this would have been considered a crime against humanity. And right now, we're all acting as if this is totally normal. So this is this is a really important interview. You know, Janine just does amazing work and uh, her segments every week, uh, her analysis is always so spot on. And now she's bringing just a, a really fabulous interview. So please stay tuned for that. Rick Spizak on the road. He is on the road, right? Amazing. Is He's providing amazing reports still. So uh, he's got an interview with Janine Economos, who is with the Farm Workers Association of Amakuli, and I'm probably mispronouncing that. Uh, Janine is an activist for pesticide safety, but today she's speaking about the impact of COVID-19 on the people who provide our food. And we're talking about the farm workers. There. Uh, it, COVID-19 right is a problem right now for farm workers, and it is on top of uh, Trump's immigration policies, ICE enforcement policy, and uh, uh, two federal policies that uh, farm workers as essential workers and also working to reduce farm pay. You know, all of this at the behest of big agricultural in interest, of course. Uh, so that is on deck. We also have, and this I saved from last week because we just had too much last week uh, to, to share. We have, but this is super cool, Maggie Herchala, which uh, you might know her name. She is famous, at least in Florida and and uh, and in activist circles elsewhere for um, just conservation activists turned first amendment activist since there was a slap suit uh, lodged against her. And she pretty much has been fighting for, you know, for all of her possessions, all of her stuff. So uh, 
we have a portion of a speech of a, of a speaking engagement that Maggie Herchala was given on the importance of freedom of speech. So look out for that um, in the show tonight. Uh, but first, I think that's it. We got those three segments. Good. Um, okay. I told you about the toilet paper, you know, what a week, what a week it is. Um, you know, there's not a lot, you know, if, if we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, which is, you know, staying home and staying safe, then there's generally not a lot to write home about. That's not always the case, especially for those of us who kind of live in a world of ideas and prefer to swim in those waters, I guess you could say, to mix the metaphors all over the place. Um, so there's there's been a lot going on with with, with COVID and with the um, with the political landscape. So I want to get into a little bit of that tonight. Um, but let's wade into that kind of slowly. Uh, I want to start out, you know, from the sublime to the ridiculous. Let's start out with the ridiculous and work our way back to the sublime. Uh, We're being told to stay home and watch Netflix. And I guess because I am um, given to that kind of authoritarianism, I have uh, been staying home and watching Netflix, specifically Netflix. Uh, this week we started a show called Ozark. We watched the first season of it. Uh, it's Laura Linney, uh, who's an amazing actor, and Jason Bateman, who's uh, good. I like Jason. Jason Bateman is Jason Bateman in everything he does. Uh, he's very good at his at his craft. Uh, Laura Linney is an artist, though. I mean, I think she's she's just amazing. So. I'd avoided the show for quite some time because it just kind of looked like, well, you know, it's another one of these dramas where you take an American family and you throw in some money laundering for a drug cartel and then you kind of shake it up and see what happens. And I've been pleasantly surprised in that this show actually has quite a bit of class consciousness. And, uh, you know, we finished the first season last night, me and my husband were talking about this and, and, uh, you know, we're talking about how, uh, you know, right wingers like to say that politics is downstream from culture on that. I think they're right. And I think you can look at some of the successes of the right wing and, uh, to find evidence of that claim. I think, a good amount of politics is downstream from culture. We, uh, that's the means by which we talk about uh, that which is political. So if culture isn't showing us class conflict uh, and if culture isn't presenting to us a, a sense of class consciousness, then that might not show up in our politics. So when I see class consciousness and class conflict uh, being used as a set piece, being used as a centerpiece, actually, in uh, some form of cultural production, whether it's a movie or television or whatever it is, I take note, you know, I, I, I can't help it because I root for it, you know, uh, and it doesn't seem like a few years ago, 
this was really the case. You weren't seeing that much class conflict and class consciousness play out in uh, mass culture. So very pleasantly surprised about this show. It uh, first aired in 2017, which means it was in production in 2016. You know, during the first go around with uh, Bernie Sanders <clears throat> movement, and um, and this first season, I think, is is a class conflict is a character. It's part of the framing. It's part of the texture, and it drives the narrative. It is written all through the show, and I think that that's you know, worth watching and worth talking about. Um, and I would like, if anybody out there, you know, it comes across, uh, you know, uh, I'm particularly interested in new uh, movies and television and, and music, you know, new forms of communication, new forms of culture that are, um, that showcase class conflict and class consciousness. If you have any examples of that, <clears throat> feel free to leave a comment or hit me up on social media because I want to keep an eye on this. I think that uh, I think that we're starting to see in the zeitgeist, we are starting to see quite a bit more class consciousness. And, we're, and I think it's getting to the point where if a cultural product lacks class consciousness and that's not written into the narrative, then it is missing something so critical as to become irrelevant. Uh, I think that this is, to me, this is one of the fatal flaws that Saturday Night Live has right now. Uh, there was a discussion about this on Twitter not too long ago and someone asked when was the last time Saturday Night Live was good and I said, well, it had to have been 77, 78, you know, the first not ready for prime, prime time players uh, because the show was scrappy and they were hungry and they weren't part of the elite yet. Um, and so it was funny, you know, it was, it was, uh, you know, we were always punching up. It was always punching up and it was always, um, you know, bringing bringing new insight, you know, or just putting humor to to the kinds of insights that, that you would expect at the end of the 70s going into the 80s. That's not the case now. You know, Saturday Night Live is so much of a, uh, it's a, it's the media elites, uh, media and cultural elites uh, entertaining themselves. You know, it's, it's humor to amuse those in in the elite class and so there's a certain amount of um kind of i want to say i guess i want to say there's there's a kind of um, reactionaryism kind of baked into the cake maybe that's the wrong word um <clears throat> it's just awful it's just awful they um they they tend to punch down they um when they're not punching down they're they're seeming more and more irrelevant and if it's not a skit that involves you know 
um, just physical humor or or fart jokes or something, or more increasingly musical numbers, then uh, then they're relying on some tropes that are that work for people in the elite, you know, for the coastal elite. And it's just not funny for the rest of us, uh, by and large. You know, it's just sort of there as a as a cultural milestone, as a beacon. It's just sort of there, whatever. Um, I hope it gets better. I doubt it will because it's just it's it's become an institution on its own. And that's why I think it's important to keep looking to new forms of cultural production and uh, take note when they are doing subversive stuff and stuff that's worth paying attention to and, uh, and uh, you know, kind of feed your soul. And so uh, I like the first season of Ozark. I saw that in that show. I think that Westworld, which uh, airs its sixth episode of season three tonight on HBO, I think that Westworld also is coming with a pretty solid class critique this season, uh, the the hosts, the uh, mechanical hosts, are uh, roughly analogous. They're roughly um, placeholders for oppressed working class. Like that's that's one way uh, of looking at them. And it looks like you know this is a season where <clears throat> where the oppressed are rising up and they're trying to start a revolution. So that makes that makes that particular show especially interesting to me this season uh and the turn that it's taken and i hope they don't you know pull the rug out from under us at the very end which they very well could be you know like setting up the the whole revolution for it to collapse upon itself and go into the next season i hope they don't do that but at least for now the fact that it seems to me that they're putting forward uh, a solid, interesting, and compelling uh, class consciousness. It's it's making up for the fact that some of the uh, people on the show, like for instance Jeffrey Wright, who plays the character Bernard on the show, just you know being a bad take generator on on Twitter, you know. Um, there's a, you know, a lot of a lot is said about the um, divide between writers and performers in cultural production, and um, one of the things that I that I hope to see and continue to see going forward is one of the things that I've that I've noticed in the past is that there the, the cultural divide between performers and writers often is that writers can hang on to who they are and to their class consciousness uh, within, often they can, um, not all of them do, um, but, but, but they can. And because they're not as pampered and privileged and feted as, uh, as performers. And so there's, there's not the, uh, there's not a culture swirling around writers the way there is a culture swirling around performers to uh, uh, apply to or appeal to the elite. 
Um, and it's going to always be, it's always going to be the writers who are, who are pushing ideas, who are getting the ideas out there uh, in a form that we can consume them. So, so television. Yay. Yay, we got some television. We also got this week, uh, Bernie Sanders continues to embarrass the living hell out of everybody who um, supported the movement. I'm going to talk a little bit about that more next week and share a, a, a an article that was written by Thomas Frank that will be the cover story of the May issue of Harper's Magazine. Um, it is called... The Pessimistic Style in American Politics and an Eternal War on Reform. That's Thomas Frank, who wrote uh, Listen Liberal, which is required reading for anybody who listens to the show. Just go find it right now. Get it, get it on Kindle. Get it sent to your house. You get plenty of time. You're in quarantine. What else are you going to do? Uh, read that book if you haven't read that book. He also wrote What's the Matter with Kansas. He was also an editor at... Uh, um, Harper's for a while and started with the founder of the magazine, The Baffler. Uh, Thomas Frank is just enjoyable. He's just a, he's just one of those writers that I, I very much enjoy. I hadn't had time to go through this essay. It's lengthy and it's quite uh, rich. So I want to, I want to discuss this more next week. Um, but I wanted to put that out there for listeners to so that you can go check it out in the interim. You can go to harpers.org.org. Uh, if you're a subscriber, you'll be able to download a PDF. Um, and uh, of course you can always pick up the magazine. It should be, you know, it's the end of April. So it, uh, it should be on the newsstands right now. Go check that out. Uh, hot, hot, hot. But you know, okay, so, so, uh, a lot's been said about Bernie Sanders and how uh, things have shaken out with him defiling himself <laughs> by by uh, uh, using his Twitter channel to air him and him endorsing Biden. It was just the, the whole thing was terrible. It was incredibly hard to watch. I actually unfollowed the Bernie Sanders uh, campaign account. I still follow his, his Senate account, but I just, you know, I just don't want to see any of that stuff. And I don't know of any progressives that I associate with who are interested in that. Now, there was a story this week that a lot of people are talking about in Politico that seems to indicate, and I hate these kinds of stories because they're very often wrong, but it seemed to indicate that Joe Biden was looking at Elizabeth Warren as his running mate to try and wrangle in the progressive base of the party. Um, I think if that happens, there will be some progressives, especially Warren voters, who are very interested in the ticket. That's not going to be enough for uh, Bernie voters. They're going to need to see some real compelling uh, policy 
changes and ideas. We can't have, you know, those of us who are interested in the movement, we're interested in protecting social security. We're interested in uh, providing Medicare for all, especially after what we've seen with, with COVID and everyone getting kicked off of their insurance right when they need it most. We are not interested in putting a, a, a fine patina on a, a, a progressive patina on a, on a crappy neoliberal old school racist who has a credible sexual assault allegation against him. And it's only one of eight, you know, Tara Reid's allegation is only one of eight. Um, so Biden is a flawed, a very, very flawed candidate, and he's going to need a lot of help and a lot of rehabilitation. And my suggestion is that he, re- he rehabilitate his own policy and pay attention to that. Um, that's all I'm going to say about that this week. We're going to move on to that next week. Uh, you know, I know COVID is uh, – People are tired of it. People are, it, 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 I'm not, I'm not tired of it. Um, I can't, I'm, I'm compulsive about it right now. I'm reading everything I can get my hands on. I want to know everything about it. And um, I'm going to share a little bit of that with you here in just a second. Sorry about that. Um, COVID origins. So I've talked a lot in the last couple of weeks about the origins of SARS-CoV-2. Um, COVID-19 is a version, is a uh, variation of the SARS virus. And uh, it's, a, it's interesting. It's just interesting on its own. And so I'm interested in what its origins are. Now, uh, earlier this week, I saw a commentary by uh, a YouTuber whose name is Bo of the Fifth, and you might be familiar with him. He's uh, he he does about a video a day, and he always signs on by saying, "Hey there, internet people," and then he signs off by saying, um, "Well, that's just a thought." And <laughs> He's a he's ex-military. He's a, a, I think he's from Georgia. He seems he seems he reminds me of everybody I used to know in East Tennessee. So um, I I kind of have an affinity to his his manner, uh, and he's got some good takes. So like anybody else, like myself, is not a hundred percent. And so he had a take this week that I was like, ah, oh, that's not that's not a good take. Um, or it's not the take that I would have. And what it was, was he was talking about how when we pay too much attention to the origins of COVID-19, then what we're doing is uh, laying the groundwork to lay blame, you know, as if 
you know, if we could just find out where this came from, then we can blame those people and make them clean it up or something. I don't know. But, um, but uh, his, his concern, he had a little concern and he said, you know, let's not make this about laying blame. And I'm all for that. I am all about not laying blame about this, but I think that you still need to have a good idea of what the origins of this virus are because is are because that is going to inform number one how you uh uh treat this particular virus now you know the more you know about it uh the more equipped you're going to be to fight it i mean even as uh even as a layman even as somebody who it would would be a potential, you know, someone who would suffer from it. It's good to know as much about it as possible. Um, and two, we want to make sure this doesn't happen again. So the ideas that I've been putting forth, that, which I believe have been um, unbiased and well-researched and well-sourced, uh, I really try not to hang things too far out there. Uh, I, I don't think that that does anybody any good, um, but uh, but it does look like COVID is an escapee from a, a BSL-4, a biosafety lab level four in Wuhan, China. Now, I get Bo the Fifth, Bo's uh, concern here. Because both Republicans and Democrats now are pretty much seem to be itching for a fight with China and they're using COVID as an excuse. Now, I don't think that's the right, I don't think that's the right approach at all. Um, Joe Biden today released a xenophobic ad blaming China for COVID-19, which comes on the heels of Trump releasing a xenophobic ad blaming China for COVID-19. This is not what we want. We don't want, we don't want this, uh, this, this is, this isn't helping. Uh, and I've got that ad right here. Let me see if I can play a little bit of it. The coronavirus, you should be more concerned about the flu and you can actually do something about it and get a flu. Oops, wrong one. Here it is. He failed to act. So now Trump and his allies are launching negative attacks against Joe Biden. High truth. Here are the facts. Joe Biden warned the nation in January that Trump had left us unprepared for a pandemic. Biden told Trump he should insist on having American health experts on. Then he told voters in Florida, Arizona, and Illinois to just go to the polls and stand in line and share pens with each other because Joe Biden. Um, he also did the same in Wisconsin, but yeah, continuing on. China. I would be on the phone with China and making it clear. We are going to need to be in your country. You have to be open. You have to be clear. We have to know what's going on. But Trump is belligerent. I am just, it's, it's a minute and 40 some seconds of Joe Biden and the Democratic Party trying to out belligerent, out bellicose um, Donald Trump vis a vis China. And uh, yeah, we don't want that. We do not want a war with China on top of having to deal with a pandemic that some 
specialists, some, some uh, researchers are saying that might be with us until 2022, until the, the midterm elections next time around. Um, laying blame is not what it's about. Um, I've taken care in sharing information that I believe is solid and unbiased, like I, I said. Um, uh, I believe that COVID was accidentally, uh, accidentally released. Uh, but I'm not saying that it's time to fear or, or, or start a war with, with China. I actually had in my notes sanctions. Yeah, maybe we do sanction them. I don't know. But it's, it's not time to start saber rattling over this. And why? You know, why, 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 if I think it did come from China, it's a very good question. Why do I think we shouldn't, you know, go hammer and tongs at them over it? Well, it appears to me, it appears to, to it, it, regarding the information that I've been sharing, it appears that the lab was working with the United States on research, um, which means that both nations are to blame. And moreover, this isn't a state issue. That BSL-4 in Wuhan is not a state communist lab. It's not just working on behalf of the state. It's not a bioweapon program. Instead, the lab has been engaged in research uh, towards the end of an HIV vaccine. And the coronavirus has been used as a um, transport vehicle, is one way that you can think of it, um, to, to insert new information <clears throat> into other, uh, um, into viruses so that they can be used as vaccines. You know, this is, this is just your, your basic way of, um, engineering with these with these bugs um so it wasn't an attack by china on the united states you know the u.s china and canada uh, among other countries have been working on this for years bill gates has devoted much of his philanthropic empire to discovering an hiv vaccine these are private enterprises they're uh, this is this is what the United States says they want to have happen is international global cooperation on problems such as this so that we can all come together and find answers to our persistent problems. Um, so, sorry for the paper, paper rattling in addition to the saber rattling. Um, it's and like I said earlier, it's also we want to understand the origin of the virus in order to help those infected now and ensure this doesn't happen again. Uh, there's a lot of published research on that virus in the pursuit of an HIV vaccine. Uh, this should provide insight into how we treat those infected with COVID-19. Um, but let's try to keep this in perspective as we move forward. This isn't about assigning a blame. Uh, instead, let's make this about saying no to xenophobia while we say yes to transparency and accountability. I mentioned last week, and I'll say it again, that BSL-4 in Wuhan, it is a private entity. It's a for-profit, you know, situation. We had, the United States had a couple of uh, contracts with that lab. Uh, they're they're doing legitimate research. Sorry.
sorry, that bumper music just wants to, it has a mind of its own. It's after you guys. Um, but, you know, that's that. The origins are important, and that's that's the key. And I and I want that to be a a, a takeaway for uh, for you guys. Um, and I'm gonna save you guys the uh, the the brain aneurysm and not go into a uh, a big technical discussion tonight. Uh, I thought instead we would hew to a more um, more philosophical discussion, actually. Uh, let's see. Okay. So I'm checking. I'm checking the time. Do, 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 do. Okay. Okay. I have plenty of time. When I promoted this show, when I put my show notes together a few days ago and promoted the show, uh, I discussed it, or I did the I did the graphic in terms of I'm gonna bring it up right here. Projects. Okay, what about freedom? This is uh, COVID-19. What about freedom? The call is coming from inside the panopticon. And I got an image there of a panopticon. If you came to the show by seeing one of my show promos, that is what that image is. It's a panopticon. So I want you to understand what a panopticon is. Uh, mostly it's a metaphor. Mostly we use pan, uh, panopticon as a metaphor. But what it initially was uh, uh, is an idea for a type of institutional building and system of control designed by English philosopher, who's a utilitarian, uh, named Jeremy Bentham in the 18th century, so in the 1700s. Uh, The concept of the design is to allow all prisoners of an institution to be observed by a single security guard. Okay, so you have this this uh, round configuration where all of the prisoners are along the perimeter and the guard tower is uh, right in the middle. And that guard could be looking at any one of the prisoners at any given time, which would be uh, influencing by external control. But the whole idea of a panopticon is for when that security guard has his back to you because the idea of panopticon is to change your behavior, to control your behavior when you're not being seen. Okay. So, so uh, it goes on this idea of internal and external control. So uh, 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 an example of, of external control is um, if you try to go into a convenience store and steal a case of beer and run out with it, chances are you're going to get caught and there will be consequences. That's external control. Someone will catch you and it will be bad. Internal control is uh, like uh, you were brought up in the Catholic church and you, uh, 
I'll say, which I did. And, uh, and, and honestly, it didn't take. And, um, but, uh, but it, the internal control of growing up in the Catholic Church is to instill all this guilt in you and fear about uh, going to hell or whatever. And um, so the net result is supposed to be you don't have sex when you're in high school or before marriage or whatever. Um, internal control forms of internal control with the panopticon the internal control is just that you don't know if you're being watched at any given moment you don't know if he's going to turn around to you and see you uh when i say that panopticon is uh more of a metaphor than anything uh you know we've 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 created some of these uh, structures. This has been um, used in, uh, for architecture. Uh, rotundas have been used, and and you know these these circular kinds of configurations where uh, like those round schools. Some of us that went to school in the 70s and 80s, some of our schools were round, and some of the the rooms were round and didn't have walls and Part of the idea behind that is the same thing, is that uh, uh, they wanted more kids, less teachers, because cheaper, and uh, the idea was without walls, and with the teacher standing up and teaching, then uh, then the kids would uh, have this panopticon kind of um, environment and would fall back on forms of internal control. Uh, and controlling their their own behavior. Now, why do I bring this up? Um, one of the things that has been freaking me out during this whole COVID thing is how people believe that the government is fixing to just fixing to to bring it all down. We're going full fascist here, and you hear people talking about health fascism, and you hear people talking about uh, that, that that martial law is coming like any minute now. Like people who honestly should know better, and and a lot of people who are just like you know not very political. Um, you know, like maybe you got family members who are. Uh, who aren't very political, but, you know, when something like this happens, rumors start and, you know, they, people might be um, sharing information that isn't accurate or, or isn't helpful. It could be accurate and maybe it's not helpful. Maybe it makes it sound like all kinds of stuff's getting ready to go down. But at any rate, uh, there's a lot of tension right now between people who want to stop social distancing and get on with things. And I understand if you're a business owner, a small business owner, especially, you need to get back to business. You need to get, you know, back into doing things. But I'm also not prepared to sacrifice uh, members of anyone's family so that, you know, uh, uh, people can get back to quaffing Pino in crowded restaurants. I don't think that's cool either. And so there's this, uh, there's this uh, a balance. And the thing that I just want to leave you with is if you think that it takes COVID to create this panopticon, if you think that that's what's required, you know, that, that, uh, that Bill Gates is going to come along with a vaccine and it's going to be full of nanobots that will be able to track you or whatever, um, that's not happening. 
And what's even worse, amongst the people that I see talking about this, uh, they fail to realize that they're sharing all of this information either on Facebook or Twitter or YouTube. So they're willingly already putting all their beliefs and their information and their thoughts and their friend list. They're all, it's already out there. You're already in the panopticon. You are soaking in it. And we have been soaking in it for quite a while. So spare me, please, the drama and the, and, and the beating of breasts, breast beating. Is that a thing? I don't know. I don't want to do it. Um, spare me. You know, you are, no one's coming for your freaking health fascism. That's not happening. What is happening, though, is um, people who are less privileged than us and people uh, who uh, really, really, really need our help, like farm workers right now, uh, they stand. They definitely stand to be uh, in the way of, of policy that's, that's, that's happening right now. Um, so save your own, save your own concern and, uh, uh, leave some, leave some for people who can actually use that. And with that, I want to share with you now this interview with Janine Economos, uh, with the, uh, farm workers and, uh, have a listen. Ladies and gentlemen, I have the great honor to work a to talk to a real humanitarian, Gene Economost, who works with our good friends, the people who who harvest our food in Florida. Jeannie, welcome. Well, thank you very much. It's a great honor to be on uh, with you because I have the greatest admiration and respect and, and, and love for the work that you do, too. So thank you for um, bringing this, these stories and, and this, um, these important issues to, um, to so many people in your audience. So thank you. Let me, let me do a little summation so that people have kind of a focus before you start speaking. Let me say that if there wasn't enough headaches and heartaches for the people who are harvesting our food between the immigration problems and the incredible rabble-rousing racist in leadership in this government. Now, of course, they're also faced with the same thing we're all facing, but they have so much less resources. Jeannie, talk about how this COVID has impacted the farm workers and what you're seeing on a day-to-day basis? Well, I'll start off by saying that before this happened, um, we were dealing with all kinds of anti-immigrant policies at the state level, at the national level, um, and just all kinds of horrible policies in agriculture as well with consolidation and reduced pay and the increase in the guest worker program. But this is just added on a whole new level and a whole new layer. And honestly, it's really heartbreaking. Um, but we're also motivated by the spirit of the people that we work with every day. Um, what we're finding is that um, farm workers are labeled essential workers, um, but they might as well have been labeled expendable workers instead of essential workers because they're being targeted every day. There, um, and we heard uh, a couple of days ago 
that now the um, the president is talking about reducing wages for what are called guest workers. I mean, how can on one hand you say that they're essential workers, and on the other hand you say that you want to lower their pay? Um, just a few things about what's happening on the ground. Um, in Florida, we have all different kinds of agriculture, and some workers are actually out of work if they work in ornamental plants because nobody's going out and buying ornamental plants right now. Um, and then some workers that work in vegetable crops are working more hours than ever, but then vegetable crops, crops are being wasted because of supply chain problems. And then we're also, just one last thing, we're coming to the end of the growing season for farm workers in Florida because in summer it's too hot to harvest, to grow and harvest fruits and vegetables. So we're coming at the peak of the crisis, the COVID crisis, um, with workers who are going to be out of work and can't travel to other areas to, to harvest crops and um, are not covered by any kind of stimulus package because they're undocumented. So um, we're scrambling, um, trying to, on the one hand, help farm workers with immediate needs, and on the other hand, try and fight for better policies um, to protect farm workers. So never a dull moment. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And I would imagine that since there has been both simultaneously a call to reduce ICE raids, but we hear reports constantly that the, the ICE raids are continuing. And farm workers don't have any trust in that. Um, you know, the, uh, with the one hand that they, you know, it, uh, the Trump administration, as we know, um, tells a lot of mistruths or lies, and so people don't have faith that um, they can say that they're going to uh, suspend ICE raids, but people don't feel uh, confident that they can go to the clinic or, or go where they need to go and be protected. Um, I mean, look at what they're doing with, you know, calling them essential workers and yet not providing them um, masks and gloves and, um, and good working conditions and, and even water and soap to wash their hands. Um, so, um, no, there's a lack of trust in, in, in people, and that just adds to the emotional and mental stress that they feel on top of everything else. Um, which, of course, has a health impact on its own. Absolutely. And a lot of farm workers have comorbidities. Um, you know, they, sure. could, they could have high blood pressure. They could have diabetes. And too often um, our society blames the victim and says, oh, well, that's your own fault because you do this or you do that. But if you live in the food desert um, or if you don't have money to to go out and buy organic vegetables, um, you know, or if you're under a lot of stress, um, you know, it's, it, it does in, increase your uh, risk for other kinds of health conditions, which then puts you at greater risk for the, the virus. I don't imagine a lot of those folks are shopping at the, uh, the organic market in Whole Foods. They're lucky if they have any money to shop at all. <laughs> so the, actually the last couple of weeks um, we have been trying to just help with very basics. Um, I mean, we of course our main goal is to try and get better policies and basically to change the whole system. But right now um, we're getting deliveries of food donations. Um, we're, uh, we have a fundraiser going on so that we can help people pay their utility bills and their rent. 
um, it's really very scary. I don't even know how to express that. Um, I mean, it's scary for everybody in the country, but for some people that qualify for the totally inadequate stimulus package, unemployment or um, sick pay, farm workers don't even get that. And I was uh, is just criminal. I was talking to one of my students. You know, I, I teach uh, 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 what we might call education and retraining of people who are trying to find a better foothold in the economy uh, in technical trades. And uh, one of the students there who is, you know, uh, a single mother, multiple children, no help from her, her husband, uh, trying to, you know, better her career opportunities – and when the news came out of what what is it a twelve hundred dollar um, bobble, right? Uh, she said to me, "What the hell do they think good that is?" And and here is a person who literally, you know, is struggling to make ends meet on a day to day basis. Not sure how she's going to feed her family, and you know she has um, she's cut right through the propaganda and knows exactly what this is about. This has nothing to do with helping people and everything to do with a charade because, oddly enough, they're not running out of money for banks. They're not running out of money for corporations, but for small businesses and for people, no big deal, no rush there. Exactly. And, uh, and, and it's, it's a mm-hmm. – go ahead. Well, just I was just going to say that we have our office – our headquarters is in Apopka, which is just north of Orlando. And this mm-hmm. is considered an agricultural area. There's lots of um, blueberries and vegetables and some citrus, and but lots of ornamental plant nurseries. And people work. In, and also one of the biggest mushroom factories in the entire country is in Zellwood, not too far from our office. And rents around here are about $1,100 a month. And that's just oh for an average place. So $1,200 uh, you know, uh, in the stimulus package, won't even get you through a month. Um, you know, be paying rent and that, that, that you can't even buy food or pay for utilities, and that's why we're starting a fund. And my biggest concern is that you know we're already seeing people that are having difficulties, but this this is just the tip of the iceberg. We haven't even begun to see the long-term consequences of this. Um, when people are right. supposed to be social distancing, if they're not able to pay their rent, they're going to be moving into, you know, homes together, two or three or four families in a home. Sure. And with farm sure. workers, you already have that in some places um, where they're already yeah. living two or three families in a home. So, um, again, we are really working with partners around the country to try and push some policies, um, you know, to try and minimize this damage. But at the same time, because we are a very grassroots organization, we have to meet needs of people, too. And so it's, um, it's quite a handful um, that we are, you know, that we're dealing with um, and uh, um, in different areas of the state as well. So, it's, um, yeah, so we're, we're, we have our hands full, and it's exhausting. <laughs> now, just so that people understand – the, the the scope of work that you're doing to try to help agricultural workers. Now, your primary issue is trying to make sure that they're not poisoned by the crop uh, herbicides and pesticides that are used. So you're, one of your main jobs is to help get that kind of issue 
to the forefront, give them the safety training they need, help them understand the, the, the issues involved. But here, you're also involved with mere just helping people survive. Actually, we've been doing pesticide health and safety trainings for about 20 years. And in the no past um, four or five years, we're also doing heat stress trainings to protect workers about how to protect themselves from um, heat exposure. Um, mm -hmm. And we had about six trainings um, scheduled before the shutdown happened for this virus. And right now, it's really hard to get farm workers to care about pesticides sure. or heat stress because they're not, they're worried about whether they're going to have food to eat or a place to stay. And so to try and talk to them about, um, you know, uh, how to protect yourself from pesticides, they're like, how to protect ourselves from the virus. So um, yeah. it's a major issue. And before the virus hit, um, the whole issue of immigration um, and threats about detentions and deportations took people's minds away from their own personal health and safety. So it was hard to get them to talk about, you know, exposure to pesticides when they're worried about their husband or their wife or their family being deported. So it's been a mounting level of um, of of abuses and um, threats um, against the community and. Um, but we have to stay strong because we're not talking about just um, objects or just generalizations. These are real people that all have very rich, vibrant, beautiful lives, and they do have resilience and strength. And that is what helps us to keep going, um, to know that we cannot stop as long as we have um, these people that are um, feeding the rest of the country feeding the world, and, um, yeah. and their strength gives us strength. Well, that's wonderful. Tell me, how can people help? People who care, people who are concerned, how, how can they help make this just a little less onerous? Well, in the short term, we are collecting food. We have five offices in the state, and all of our offices are collecting food, everything from beans and rice to peanut butter um, to fresh fruits and vegetables. Um, and they can go to our website um, at uh, floridafarmworkers.org. And we also have um, a fundraiser where we're um, raising money, as I mentioned before, to help people with their utility bills and rent. Um, but then also they can sign up on our um, newsletter. And we send out a newsletter um, every few weeks to talk about um, petitions people can sign, um, phone calls that they can make, policy change that they can work for. Um, and another thing that they can do is they can support um, community-supported agriculture and um, avoid, well, I will go ahead and say it. I will say people should not shop at Whole Foods and not support Amazon and big corporate business, but support small farms and, um, and support workers' rights all across the board. Um, so those are some of the things that people can do. Um, but please um, feel free to join our newsletter and join the Farm Worker Association. And we do work on immigrants' rights, um, pesticide health and safety, and we do work to try and fight to change the system. That's our ultimate goal because with this system, we are not going to be able to continue agriculture in this way. And this crisis is really laying that bare for the, the whole public to see. You know, if it if it wasn't so damn serious, 
you almost have to laugh at the irony of Senator Sanders, whose whole goal is treating people better, fair wages, and health care available for everyone, to have this virus issue bringing to the forefront the dangers of a population who just doesn't have access to health care. How, how obvious does it have to get? And I just I just have to say thank you again. Please say one more time, how can they find you on, on Facebook, I would presume? Yes, we're, how else can they? We're on Facebook, and we also have a website, floridafarmworkers.org, and they can follow us on Twitter, F-W-A-F-L, um, um, at F-W-A-F-L, and, um, and we're on Instagram as well. So they can follow us on social media, um, sign up for our newsletter. Please feel free to call us. The phone number is 407-886-5151. My name is Jeannie, and we welcome any help from, like I said, from food and money donations to help us fight the power and change the system. Thank you so very much, Jeannie. Thank you. Uh, I love the work you do, and uh, you're doing the work of the angels. Thanks again. Thank you. Maybe we can end with a little chant. We can. We, let's Go ahead. Si se puede. Si se puede. Si se puede. Si se puede. Si puede. puede. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, my dear. Thank Wonderful you. talking to you. Likewise. Bye-bye. Be well. Bye-bye. You too. Okay. Um, a point A. Uh, without further ado, here is Maggie Hercha on the First Amendment. Can you be sued for trying to save the world? Yes. <clears throat> Should you crawl under the bed and give up on trying to save the world? No. Uh, not unless you've given up on democracy. Not unless you've given up on the notion that... <clears throat> uh, a nation that is founded on of the people, for the people, and by the people shall not perish from this earth. Go back and read the First Amendment again. <clears throat> Congress shall make no laws respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of people peaceably to assemble and to petition their government for a redress of grievances. In seventh grade civics class, that phrase about petitioning for a redress of grievances sounded kind of archaic. But actually, our founding fathers thought that was the most important part of the First Amendment. They thought that we were the only country in the world that had ever been founded on the idea that your government had to listen to you, and had to let you talk. That makes us pretty special. But there are now property rights groups that don't believe that. They don't believe that the First Amendment right to petition overcomes the sanctity of contracts. They believe that if you interfere intentionally with a contract in any way, That is what they call tortious or wrongful interference, and you're subject to damages. For almost 200 years, the right to petition never got questioned in court. We 
went by the theory that government doesn't have to do what you say, but they have to let you say it. And then in the 1980s, the attack started. It was the corporate answer to silencing the activism of youthful protesters in the 60s and 70s. And now there's a rash of petition clause lawsuits against the petitioners, the people. Uh, the strategy earned the name slap suit with two Ps, strategic lawsuit against public participation. Slap suits <coughs> are not just about the environment, not just about youthful protesters. Uh, they've been um, filed in every state in this country, <coughs> and um, they have been filed by the rich and powerful to fight back against those who want to be heard. In Colorado, for instance, back in the 1980s, <clears throat> a woman who talked to her school board member about the fact that the brakes on the school bus screeched got sued by the school bus company. And <clears throat> people have been sued who uh, had concerns about uh, <clears throat> what was happening in their neighborhood with a development project that they wanted to uh, talk about, that <clears throat> religious groups have been sued for talking about the curriculum and what they'd like to see in it. More recently, Resolute Timber Company sued Greenpeace in California for tortious interference. And they said that Greenpeace lied because they said that the timber company, because of its timber practices, was a forest destroyer. And they put expert witnesses on the stand that said they had not destroyed the entire forest. Therefore, Greenpeace was guilty of tortious interference and owed them millions of dollars. Uh, the standing Sioux were sued by the Dakota, Pipeline, Dakota Access Pipeline Company. Uh, the pipeline company claimed that their protest, the Sioux's pro protest against the pipeline, was not protected by the First Amendment. And the Delaware Riverkeeper Organization was sued <clears throat> by a developer who said that when they expressed their concerns about what his project might do to the river, <clears throat> they lied and they owed him money. In all of those cases, the petitioners won. <clears throat> but slap suits aren't about winning. According to Wikipedia, <clears throat> in the typical slap, the plaintiff does not normally expect to win and win the lawsuit. The plaintiff's goals are accomplished if the defendant succumbs to fear, intimidation, mounting legal cost, or simple exhaustion, and abandons the criticism. <clears throat> they don't care if they win as long as you shut up. And they count on the fact that if they shut you up, everyone else shuts up. If you want to learn more about slap suits, <clears throat> there's a wonderful book written by Kanan and Pring called Slapped, again with two Ps, <clears throat> Getting Sued for Speaking Out. <clears throat> they have studied and covered slap suits for 30 years all over the country. <clears throat> if you want to learn more about <clears throat> slap suits and laugh at them, then just Google John Oliver slap suits. John Oliver got sued. Uh, he finally won. Uh, watch him laugh at slap suits.
but they're not funny. <clears throat> I am currently the Florida poster child for slapsuits. I'm being sued <clears throat> by a billionaire named George Lindemann in a case <clears throat> styled Lake Point versus Maggie Herchala. I lost in the circuit level, and I owe Lake Point $4.3 million. They took away my two whitewater kayaks. They took away my 2004 uh, old Toyota. And they threatened to garnish my uh, plain gold wedding band. <clears throat> we lost again at the 4th District Court of Appeals, and we're now appealing to the Florida Supreme Court. This is not a story about a poor little old lady who was destroyed by a billionaire bully and his snidely whiplash lawyers. I am 79 years old. I am not little, and I am not destroyed. I am proud of standing up for the First Amendment, and I'm happy and awed at friends and strangers who have donated and stood up for me and for a wonderful bunch of lawyers. I would rather be me than George Lindemann. If he wins, his children can remember that he destroyed a bedrock of American democracy. Even if I lose, my grandchildren will know I never gave up for fighting for it. <clears throat> As Pogo used to say, it makes a man humble and sort of proud. If no one stands up to the big bullies, the little bullies are going to come out of the woodwork and they're going to take over the world. I'll give you a brief <clears throat> summary of what the Lake Point decision is about, but you can read all the gory details at the website slapmaggie.com. That's two P's in slap and a Y on Maggie. And you can read the legal briefs in the case at defendmaggie.com. But this is not about me and it's not about George Lindemann. This is about the First Amendment and the right to talk back to your government. <clears throat> when you ignore all the other problems in the lower court ruling, <clears throat> what it comes down to is this. Uh, Lake Point claimed her chala lost her First Amendment privileges because, number one, she made statements <clears throat> regarding studies of the project uh, project benefits that she knew were false or recklessly disregarded the falsity of. And number two, her chala lost her common law privileges because she acted through improper methods uh, by making those same false statements and evincing ill will toward Lake Point by sending emails to county commissioners that instructed them to take certain actions with respect to the project and were signed <clears throat> with names showing malice. As a defensive footnote, <clears throat> I told the commissioners not to close down the project in my emails, <clears throat> but to require them to meet the conditions it agreed to. Lake Point told the judge and jury that I was an influential, self-appointed environmentalist <clears throat> who hated all small businesses and decided to uh, concoct a scheme and dedicate my life to destroying Lake Point. 
Uh, they said that I <clears throat> sent emails to the private email addresses of county commissioners who were my friends and who were ignorant about the issues. <clears throat> and my ma malicious intent was shown in two emails <clears throat> in which I signed uh, somewhat irreverently. <clears throat> uh, one of those like emails didn't even have any, anything to do with Lake Point. Lake Point and its principal owners are not a small business, and I don't hate small businesses. I am not a self-appointed environmentalist. I have won the National Wetlands Award from the Environmental Law Institute. Uh, I have uh, won the Conservation Achievement National Conservation Achievement Award from the National Wildlife Federation. Uh, I'm in the Everglades Hall of Fame with Marjorie Stoneman Douglas and Nat Reed. Uh, that's probably why they chose me to sue. What I said in a public email to all of the commissioners that Lake Point said was a lie, that I knew to be a lie, was a study was to follow <clears throat> that documented the project benefits. That study has not been provided. There does not appear to be any peer review by the SERP team to verify the benefits of the project. SERP is the Comprehensive Everglades Restoration Program. <clears throat> George Lindemann Jr. early on promised me that there would be a SERP review of the project. That SERP review was never produced. But Lake Point told the jury, she said no studies were produced. Look at this pile of studies. And they produced a number of studies that showed there might be some potential benefit to the project. None of them were SERP studies. None of them were SERP reviews. I'm on my way to the state Supreme Court and standing in the road like a possum in the headlights because of the precedents that have been set in this case both at the lower court and affirmed by the appeals court in terms of the First Amendment and our right to petition our government. A friend of the court brief filed on behalf of a group of Florida environmentalists concluded, if the $4.3 million judgment levied against the appellant is not reversed, most environmental advocacy in Florida will likely cease to exist. And it's not just about the environmentalists. A request to appear as an amicus curiae, as a friend of the court, have also been posted by press groups, First Amendment groups, <clears throat> and religious groups. Kanan and Pring, <clears throat> who wrote the book on slap suits, <clears throat> filed an amicus, and they said in the 30 years that they had studied slap suits, they had never seen a case that more closely fits a description of slap than this one. What are those precedents and why should you care? Number one, you can successfully be sued for something you didn't say. <clears throat> uh, the appeals court did not review the record and appears not to have read the email that I sent. Normally an appeals court does not have to review the entire record of a lower court, but in constitutional cases they are required to do so. Number two, 
at trial, I had an expert on the stand that said that the statements I made were true. Uh, the new precedent is, or at least it suggests, that disagreement between experts means one of those experts is willfully lying. Number three, you have no First Amendment privilege if you use improper method. Uh, the appeals court agreed with Lake Point that the following were clear and convincing evidence of improper method. The court said that it was telling that I contacted officials outside a public meeting. <clears throat> I attempted to influence commissioners who were my friends. I attempted to influence commissioners who were ignorant about some of the issues, and I was influential and therefore able to unduly influence them. Finally, proof of malice <coughs> was my irreverent signature on an email about Lake Point that I signed Deep Rock Pit. How does that compare with existing precedents? What are we about to lose in terms of First Amendment rights that we thought we had? The standard for losing the First Amendment privilege is clear and convincing evidence of actual and express malice. You lied. You lied knowingly. You were lying for the sole purpose of destroying the business. And you did it with malice and malicious intent. The burden of proof is on the person who's suing you. According to existing precedent, to find actual malice, uh, there must be sufficient evidence uh, to permit the conclusion that the defendant, in fact, entertained serious doubts as to the truth of his publication. Uh, I never expressed doubts about my statements. I believe they're true. I had a qualified expert witness who had served on the SERP review team who testified that my statement as to the SERP review of benefits was true. The Florida Supreme Court has held in the past that qualified privilege isn't overcome by the simple fact that a statement is false. They ruled <clears throat> that malice cannot be inferred from the mere fact that statements are untrue. A qualified privilege isn't overcome by the simple fact that a defendant makes a false statement. Florida courts have set a very high standard for finding expressed malice, <clears throat> which requires extreme hostility to gratify malevolence toward the plaintiff, such as ill will, hostility, evil intention to defame and injure. <clears throat> According to the court, express malice can be shown <clears throat> by the use of improper method. But when <clears throat> there's a lot, that liability would be based on expression to a government official on a matter of public interest, on the petition clause. Only 
proof of malevolence can defeat the First Amendment privilege. I can tell you, except until I got through all this long lawsuit, I had no malevolence toward Lake Point. I was interested in what that project would do to the environment. <clears throat> Since the adoption of the First Amendment, the courts have uh, allowed and encouraged boisterous disagreement in uh, the public forums of democracy. Being wrong is not tortious interference. Being uh, angry at the other side is not tortious interference. Uh, your method, whether it's wearing armbands or speaking out or waving signs, whether it's in a public statement or on a phone call or in an email, uh, those methods are not tortious interference. What is both wrong and actionable is to malevolently make up lies about a company for the sole purpose of putting them out of business. So, how do you keep from being sued? Honestly, you can't. <clears throat> uh, that uh, vengeful billionaires and deep pocket corporations are going to continue to sue advocates with slap suits for as long as the strategy works. There are a disparate bunch of things you can do and not do that might lessen the threat. One, make your complaint to government officials. The right to petition is actually stronger <clears throat> than the right of the free press or the right of free speech. Number two, simply adding, in my opinion, will not save you. The Fourth District Court of Appeals ruled in the Lake Point case that even if we view the statement as mixed opinion, <clears throat> the statement would not be privileged under the First Amendment. <clears throat> Statements are not privileged opinion where the speaker or writer neglects to provide the audience with an adequate factual foundation prior to engaging in the offending discourse. Try to imagine saying all that factual foundation of what you want to say in a public meeting where your time limit to talk is three minutes. Number three, <clears throat> using hyperbole can save you. <clears throat> If you feel angry at the other side, say something absolutely outlandish and you'll be okay. Uh, Jerry Falwell sued a magazine because they published a cartoon of him losing his virginity to his mother in an outhouse. The court said that was hyperbole. And they dismissed the case, saying that nobody could take seriously that it was an accusation about real fact. Number four, you are not legally required to preserve all communications you ever make with public officials. They may be required to save them, but you're not required to save them. Um, but once a lawsuit has been threatened or filed, you should save all emails, all written communications, all communications that you have had from that date forward on the subject. <clears throat> um, um, and the fact that, and you should not destroy the ones from that date backwards either. <clears throat> But uh, 
Remember, if you get sued at that point, don't discard any information about it. Save it, file it, have it ready. Uh, number five, that will not necessarily protect you. In the Lake Point case, uh, the circuit judge opined that any time you criticized a wealthy corporation, you should know that you were going to be sued. And therefore, because you knew you were going to be sued, you were legally bound to save all communications from the first time you criticized that company. Uh, the judge then told the jury that since I was legally bound and since I had said that before the lawsuit was threatened, I, hadn't, uh, I had uh, gotten rid of all kinds of emails about all kinds of things because my email box was overflowing. He said that because of that, the jury could infer that I had destroyed important emails that would be important evidence in convicting me and that they could use those imagined emails as evidence. Ah, number six, be aware that your email may be, may be hacked and your phone may be tapped. I know that all of us try to get over our paranoia when we're on the um, um, uh, front in advocacy battles but the fact is that slappers are not nice people and they have very deep pockets. Seven, <clears throat> it is probably not wise to be irreverent. I think that's sad. I like to take my causes seriously, but I try not to take myself too seriously. And <clears throat> we really should have fun saving the world. Number eight, always try to be accurate. Do your homework and keep a record. Back up those records so that they won't be hacked and lost. Nine, if you get a threatening letter from the opposition attorney that seems to be absolutely ridiculous, don't just throw it away. Take the time to answer it in detail. It will not deflect the slapper, but it may be very useful if you get to trial, particularly in showing things that you didn't say. Number 10, get together with your allies. Make sure everyone involved understands the issues that you're petitioning about. Go to meetings en masse. <clears throat> Some public officials will ask you to appoint a representative to speak for all of you. Don't. It's we, the people. Let everyone say it in their own way as individuals. Repetition is okay. Number 12, work with state and national organizations to get backup research on your concerns. Number 13, lobby your legislature for strong slap suit laws. Florida has a strong constitutional protection, but it has a very weak slap suit law. 14, pay attention to local judicial races. Most people don't bother, and judges get real incumbents get reelected over and over. You're not looking for somebody on your side. You're looking for somebody intelligent and honest. Publicize your bar association judicial rating. Find good candidates to run and help them get elected. Fifteen, help others being slapped. I have a wonderful long list of uh, concerned citizens and groups. Uh, that have donated to my slap pack fan, uh, fund 
and have petitioned to file Friends of the Court briefs. I couldn't do it without them. Number 16, join Protect the Protesters movement. You can find it just by Googling Protect the Protesters uh, on uh, uh, the web. It includes ACLU, Greenpeace, Electronic Frontier Foundation, Freedom of the Press Foundation, and a whole bunch of other groups. Uh, send the website link to all of your friends. 17. Have parties and watch John Oliver laugh at slapsuits. It's fun. And you also learn a lot about slapsuits. 18. Read Canaan and Pring. <coughs> the book on, their book on slapsuits. It's well written and you'll learn a lot. 19. If you are going to be a troublemaker in the eyes of those who are rich and powerful, it is time for you <coughs> to do some estate planning. Your living will and your will are probably out of date anyway. You want to go to a very good lawyer and you want to um, make sure that everything is in order. Uh, if you are married and you intend to stay married, be aware of the fact that your bank uh, will advise you to hold your account, your joint account, as tenants in common with rights of survivorship. Sounds good. Uh, the reason they do that is that way they can take half of the bank account away if they have a lien against you. Uh, what you want, if you plan to stay married and are fond of your spouse, is tenants in the entireties. In that case, you own it as a single entity and the bank cannot take bank or anybody else who's trying to garnish your funds cannot take half of it. 20. Before you go to trial, <clears throat> demand summary judgment on constitutional grounds. Bring up constitutional grounds throughout the trial, not just in opening and closing statements. Let people know what their First Amendment rights are. And finally, <clears throat> the First Amendment is worth it. Democracy is worth it. Hug each other and don't back down. Have fun storming the castle. All right. And that's what we're here to do. We are having fun while we storm the castle. And we are going to keep storming right over to Marjorie Cohn. Interview with uh, Janine Maloff just brought in. Um, speaking of storms, we got a lot of storms rolling through the southern United States right now. So you guys stay safe in the Georgia Mississippi, and uh, it looks like South Carolina is going to get hit, too. So well, here's Marjorie. Welcome to Blog Talk Radio. We are pleased to announce that we are going to have legal expert uh, Marjorie Cohn to discuss what's going on, another version, another, to discuss what's going on with the COVID uh, crisis. And this instance, she's going to be talking about um, what's happening in with our sanctions against Venezuela and Iran and how that constitutes medical genocide. Hello. Hi. Marjorie. Hi, Marjorie. Welcome to Block Talk Radio. We are so pleased to have you here. Um, well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Oh, I, I am so uh, totally impressed with you. Uh, I'm going to give a little bit of background to our audience about about you and your experience. You are a noted in, um, I'm sorry, I'm trying to get this together here. You're a noted expert in legal, all sorts of legal situations and uh, what you're really talking about, you've been a, um, 
I'm sorry, excuse me. We're going to edit this. Don't worry. Uh, I seem to have lost part of this because we're just recording and we will be able to edit. So, you said there's a little bit of an echo when I'm listening to you. Uh, it's, pro- it's probably my phone, okay? So just give me a second here. We will. This is my first time using this machinery, so I'm kind of, yeah, <laughs> I'm kind of struggling with it. Uh, and uh, give me a second here. There we go. I had everything together, and now it is. Okay, so we will go back to this now, okay? So you to tell our audience your background. You're a professor professor emerita at Thomas Jefferson School of Law. You taught from ninety one to sixteen and you're a former president of the National Lawyers Guild. Uh you have lectured, written, and provided commentary for local, regional, national, and international media. Uh you've served as a news consultant for CBS News and a legal analyst for Core TV as well as a legal and political commentator on various other uh, media sources such as the BBC, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, NPR, and Pacifica Radio. Uh, Marjorie Marjorie Cohen is the author of several books, Cowboy Republic, Six Ways the Bush Gang is Defied the Law, and you're the co-author of Cameras in the Courtroom, Television, and the Pursuit of Justice with David Dow, Rules of Disengagement for Politics and Honor of Military Defense, and you're an editor and contributor to the United United States and Torture, Interrogation, Incarceration, and Abuse. And your last one is Drones and Targeted Killing, Legal, Moral, and Geopolitical Issues. Um, one of your books was cited in a U.S. Supreme Court opinion. Your articles have appeared in numerous journals, such as the Fordham Law Review, Hastings Law Journal, the Virginia Journal of International Law, Christian Science Moniker, Chicago Monitors the Chicago Tribune, your contributing editor to Jurist and the National Lawyers Guild Review, and and so many more. Um, you are truly a a warrior for what we are dealing with now, a warrior for justice. And I just want to welcome you to the show. Uh, we've been doing, this is part of our series titled Not Dying for Wall Street regarding the COVID crisis. And you have today a very interesting uh, take on this particular issue, something that you um, refer to as medical terror, medical terrorism. So with that, I'm going to let you introduce this. Go ahead. Tell us about medical terrorism. What do you mean by that? Medical terrorism is what the United States is doing to Iran and Venezuela in the midst of probably the worst pandemic in history. The U.S. maintains punishing sanctions against Iran and Venezuela because the U.S. doesn't like their 
governments and wants to forcibly change their regimes. And so these punishing sanctions, which are supposed to put pressure on the people to change their government, end up only hurting the people. And it's interesting because Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has said that we're going to we're going to slap these sanctions on Iran so hard that the people are going to rise up and, and overthrow the government. Well, actually, Janine, that's the same thing that the government, the U.S. government, thought in 1960 when they slapped an embargo, which turned into a blockade against Cuba. Um, there was a secret oh, yeah. State Department memo that said that if we make life miserable enough for the people that they'll overthrow the uh, Castro regime. And, of course, uh, that was 1960. Uh, 20, let's see, 40, 60 years ago, is that right? 40 and 20, yeah. 60, 60 years ago. Yeah, and the Cubans still have not overthrown their government. So it's, it's a losing strategy, plus it's illegal. Forcible regime change is illegal. Right, it is. And you've also written that basically these unilateral coercive measures violate both UN and what you call the OAS charters. Um, could you speak to that? And also a violation of U.S. law under the Supremacy Clause. So could you explain to our audience what each one means? Especially, let's start with the Supremacy Clause. Well, the Supremacy Clause of the Constitution says that treaties shall be the supreme law of the land, and that means that when the United States ratifies a treaty and becomes a party to that treaty, that becomes part of U.S. domestic law. So we're not just talking about international law out in the stratosphere. These treaties are part of U.S. law. And so the sanctions, which are called unilateral coercive measures, because they're unilateral, the United States is imposing them by itself without the uh, agreement of the U.N. Security Council, which the U.N. Charter requires, um, violate the U.N. Charter for that reason and also the Charter of the Organization of American States. Um, under the U.N. Charter, the protection of health is a stated goal of the UN Charter, and member countries of the UN organization are required to take actions that promote health. And yet the United States is doing just the opposite, um, exacerbating the suffering of the Iranian and Venezuelan people in the midst of the pandemic. And the Charter of the Organization of American States, or OAS, prohibits any country from intervening directly or indirectly in the internal or external affairs of another country. And that includes any type of interference against the political, economic, or cultural system. Um, no state can use coercive economic or political measures to force the sovereign will of another state, and yet that's exactly what the United States is doing with its forcible regime change strategy. Right. Right. Let, let's go back to the, the UN, uh, United Nations Charter, because you said that this is interfering with medical assistance. Uh, could you explain to the audience briefly how that's happening, how the, the sanctions are hurting medical efforts to save lives during the COVID crisis? Well, first take Iran, um, where as of April 8th, Iran had 64,500 cases of COVID-19 and almost 4,000 deaths. 
And it is undisputed that Trump's sanctions against Iran, Iran are a primary cause of these extremely high casualties. Um, the, they affect Iran's ability to contain the outbreak. It leads to more infections and uh, the possible spread of the virus beyond Iran's borders to Afghanistan, where the U.S. has troops. Um, and also there is a um, – uh, let's see um, – the U.S. Uh, had, had imposed – sanctions, uh, basically an, an effective economic blockade of the energy exactly. banking and finance sectors and um, the targeting of basic food and medicine. Well, the U.S. Right. now has imposed, imposed additional sanctions on Iran during this pandemic, uh, weaponizing the coronavirus. And uh, Iran's foreign minister calls this the sanctions economic terrorism and the right. refusal to lift the sanctions during the pandemic medical terrorism right because they in other words they can't get access to enough supplies and medicines because of the sanctions right exactly okay. exactly yeah and uh, yeah. okay okay so you know you also mentioned the chart of the organization of american states where we can't interfere in any way and i think a lot of americans don't really understand that now looking for, down further and you also mentioned how this collective punishment through these sanctions violates the Fourth Geneva Convention. Could you speak to that, please? Um, yes. Collective punishment means um, the people are punished collectively for um, the actions of their government. And collective punishment under the Fourth Geneva Convention is a war crime. Um, it says that no civilian can be punished for an offense he or she has not personally committed. And reprisals against these people are prohibited, and yet the United States is punishing the people of Iran and Venezuela for the actions of their governments. And this is illegal collective punishment. Okay. I wonder how much of this extraordinary uh, pun collective punishment is related to racism because both groups are people of color, racism and religious bigotry. Um, I wonder You're how much that correct. is attributed to them. That's, because that's right, Janine. Yeah. Iran is a Muslim, uh, you know, Muslim country, and I'm particularly sensitive to it because I'm Jewish, and, you know, again, there seems to be less credence attached to non-Christian groups. Uh, and then Venezuela, again, they're people of color. Um not to mention also the, the how basically there are certain resources that we want to get our hands on also. But that's another interview, I'm sure. Um, you also mentioned how forcible regime change violates the ICCPR. And if you could go over what the IC, the Internet, which is the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, and you wrote that basically it recognizes self-determination as a human right, and to quote you, quote, guarantees all peoples the right to freely determine their political status and freely pursue their economic, social, and cultural development. Um, how could you speak to that a little more about forcible regime change and how it violates this agreement? Um, yes. Uh, no country has the right to forcibly change the regime of another. And as you said, you quoted the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which 
is a binding treaty the United States has ratified. It is um, it, it grew out of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which Eleanor right. Roosevelt had a big part in in crafting yeah. um, after World War II. And uh, and um, Idris Jazeri, who is the UN Special Rapporteur on the Negative Impact of Sanctions, um, said coercion, whether military or economic, must never be used to seek a change in government in a sovereign state. And um, a letter was sent to uh, Donald Trump, Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary and Secretary of State uh, Mike Pompeo by more than 200 legal professionals and organizations, including, I signed the letter, including my organizations, the National Lawyers Guild, the International Association of Democratic Lawyers, and the American Association of Jurists. And in that letter... We to Trump, Mnuchin, and Pompeo, we wrote, your administration's disapproval of the government of a foreign state provides no legal justification for policies and actions intended to deprive residents of the targeted state of necessaries as a means of forcing a change to a regime more to the liking of the United States. And this is not a new thing, Janine, I'm sure you know. Um, the CIA has overthrown democratically elected uh, governments for years um, in Iran, in Chile, in, in Guatemala, they've been trying like crazy to overthrow the regime of Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela, uh, most with, with punishing sanctions, um, and most recently um, a re- indicting uh, Maduro on, uh, on uh, charges relating to narco-terrorism, and the U.S. is sending Navy destroyers to the Caribbean on the pretext of a counter-narcotics operation. Venezuela is not a major player in, uh, in the drug operations. Uh, C- Colombia, wow. who is a very close ally of the United States, is. And the sanctions against Venezuela, um, according to the New York Times, have contributed to the largest economic collapse in a country outside of war, at least since the 1970s. And uh, in February, Venezuela filed a complaint against the United States in the International Criminal Court, calling the sanctions crimes against humanity. Oh, well, they are. And, and I'm, yeah, I am very aware of that. Uh, a lot of the um, uh, refugees we've been receiving from Central America, in particular, and South America, they are climate change refugees that have been driven out by various corporate interests that our government favors, and you know, such as energy companies polluting their water sources and so on. So, yeah, very, very aware. Um, this is, you know, again, we, we don't expect the Trump administration to do the right thing. They, they're pretty adamant. Um, we I, can expect I would them to say, do the wrong thing. <laughs> yes, exactly. But what legally could we do to hold them accountable? You know, what could we do, you know, legally in the courts to basically make them follow the law? I mean, is, is, is Trump and his administration, are, can we get charges of criminal malfeasance against them or uh, negligent homicide. I mean, there's been a lot of stuff thrown out there. Is, is there any any recourse for us at all? Well, that's a good point, and many people have talked about that. The International Court of Justice actually ruled in a case that Iran brought uh, in uh, the Inter- 
International Court of Justice is is uh, the judicial arm of the UN system. It's it's not a criminal court the way the International Criminal Court is, and and uh, they uh, awarded what are called provisional measures. They haven't decided the merits of the case about the sanctions, but they said that uh, the U.S. should uh, should suspend the sanctions, which of course the U.S. thumbs its nose at the World Court, the ICJ. Um, but also um, there is something that we can do, and that is to pressure our congressional representatives um, to end the sanctions against Iran and Venezuela. Almost everyone in Congress has supported these sanctions. And uh, very recently, two members of Congress, Ilan Omar and uh, Rashid Tlaib, introduced a bill in the House of Representatives called the Congressional Oversight of Sanctions Act. It's H.R. 5879, and it would provide some oversight, congressional oversight of sanctions, so that the executive, the president, doesn't just have a blank check to slap sanctions on any country he wants for any reason, and it would require a report on why sanctions were chosen rather than another tool to address the emergency, whether the sanctions are unilateral, and if so, why no other country has imposed them, and what are the requirements for lifting the sanction. The sanctions, right. and so I think that one thing people can do is to pressure their representatives, their congressional representatives, to sign on mm-hmm. to the Omar Tlaib HR five eight seven nine. Also, there is a violation of the International Executive Economic Powers Act, which is what Trump used um, to uh, to slap the sanctions on Venezuela and Iran, the most recent ones, um, because that. International Executive Economic Powers Act only allows the president to impose sanctions after he makes a good faith declaration that the targeted country presents an unusual and extraordinary threat to the United States. Well, neither Venezuela nor Iran present any threat to the United States. And in fact, Iran, Iran was being contained very well um, and not mm-hmm. developing a nuclear program, and that was that was verified by the uh, International Atomic Energy Agency of the UN uh, under the Iran deal that Obama uh, had participated in crafting. And one of the first things that Trump did when he took office, trying to neutralize and, and erase everything Obama did, um, was to right. pull the U.S. out of that Iran deal as well as the climate agreement and many other things, uh, just devastating. And then uh, once once uh, he pulled out of the agreement, then Iran said, well, we're not bound by it anymore, and they started enriching uranium. And uh, Trump said, well, we're re- reimposing the sanctions, these punishing sanctions um, against uh, – against Iran. And uh, so so right down the line, Janine, every time there is anything progressive that Obama did, and I was critical of Obama during his uh, during his presidency. I wrote articles criticizing his drone surveillance, etc. I was too. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) Right. Trump is is, uh, trying to decimate any progress Obama made. And in Mm -hmm. so doing, um, he has become a danger, not just to people in the United States, but to people all over the world. And now, particularly with his delayed response, Mm -hmm. unconscionable delay in in responding to the pandemic, um, sitting on it for two months in denial. He's still in denial. He's still talking about Mm -hmm. things are looking good. We have plenty of ventilators. We have plenty of beds. We have plenty of tests. We have plenty of masks. We're going to open the economy. And he's playing to his base, um, who are in denial that we're really in the middle of a plague, uh, which we are. Yeah, the nurses have already basically blown the whistle on that, especially Nurses United. You know, as I'm listening to you, 
one of the things that becomes very evident is, you know, Trump takes this unitary executive model to the extreme with the help of, you know, A.G. Barr. And, uh, you know, again, my understanding is that when it comes to diplomacy, while the executive branch may lead, all those trees, are, it still has to have congressional approval. So, again, where is Congress when an executive runs rampant? That's a really good, uh, good, good question, Janine. Um, of course, the Senate is uh, has a Republican majority, and so right. over 200 bills that the House has, the democratically controlled House, has passed, um, most of which will probably make our lives much better. Um, the ones I know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not familiar with every one of them, but but uh, by and large, um, are sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk, and so he won't let those uh, won't won't let those go forward. But um, when uh, when uh, two members of the House uh, try to to uh, inter- introduce a bill, um, it's important to get co-sponsors and uh, and and set that up because it is uh, possible and hopefully probable that the Democrats will retake the Senate um, in November, and then uh, some real progress could be made. And of course, the presidency uh, also must uh, change hands in order to make any progress as well. Right, and I guess what I'm looking at really is holding both parties accountable and demanding that they actually fulfill their role, regardless of their own partisan views. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, in my opinion, when they're not doing that, they're at least guilty of misfeasance. Perhaps they're doing premeditation malfeasance, and there has to be a way we can hold them accountable. Uh, right now, it just seems like all we can do is say, well, we'll vote you out or we'll beg them. You know, there needs to be, and I'm sure there is, you know, I know there are such categories as misfeasance and malfeasance, you know, while in office, and they're not used. And I guess my question is, what would it take to bring these charges and against including members of Congress and hold them accountable? What? How can we do this? Yeah, bringing bringing lawsuits against members of Congress for not doing their job is an iffy proposition. Um, I think that pressure from their constituents is the thing that uh, Congress members respond to the most, and that means calling, writing, emailing, um, writing op-eds, uh, texting, mm-hmm. making uh, making clear uh, our demands mm-hmm. in any way we can with our uh, elected officials. And that includes, and this is, of course, um, as you say, uh, a sin of the Democrats as well as the Republicans in Congress, mm-hmm. and that is the military budget, which is right. just incredibly bloated and unnecessary and if you think about all of that money that could go billions of dollars that could go for health care and education and and infrastructure and helping people in this country um, it just boggles the mind that they feel that they're so cowed and this is this is most people most congress uh, members in both parties um, whenever the president asks for uh, a an increase in the military budget. They don't want to be, they, you know, they don't want to be perceived as not supporting the troops, and yes. and so they just vote for it over and over and over. And uh, and of course, you know who yeah. that's enriching: the defense contractors who are making yeah. the bomb, making the bombers, right. making the and, drones, and and, um, and, uh, and yeah. Speaking, I mean, here, you know, I'm in St. Louis. My colleagues are in Florida, and I was a Ferguson activist and white ally. And 
we've done all those things. We have risked arrest. We have taken over mall. And Senator Blunt couldn't care less. You know, and it's it's really vile. I I really do think, and I I hear what you're saying. I really do think we do need legal recourse, not necessarily just lawsuits, but I mean a way to actually recall and kick them out of office when they violate their oath of office. I think that's what I'm speaking to. But um, we have four minutes left, and what I'd like to do, because again, a, a lot of people out there, they aren't as astute and as you are, obviously, and they. They don't always make the the teacher in me is coming out. They don't always make the connection between what you're calling medical terrorism once again and the sanctions. The idea that the sanctions cut off a lot of things, including money, including foodstuffs that might be in trust by including medicine and that 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 pipeline. Could you kind of explain it and kind of bring it together and summarize it so that the average person could understand it. I think that would be helpful. Um, yes. Well, the sanctions that the United States has imposed, that the U.S. government, and, and Trump's not the first president to impose sanctions on Iran, right. but he's certainly taken it to a new level, um, have uh, have hurt the people of Iran. They've only hurt the people of Iran. And um, they are... <clears throat> um, they are are uh, unable to get uh, medicines. They're unable to get food. They're unable to get things they need to to fight this this virus. Um, like humanitarian orders. imports, vital medicines, medical equipment, yeah. and uh, and so the that's why the uh, prime minister of Iran said that the U.S. refusal to lift the sanctions um, during the pandemic yeah. constituted medical terrorism. And also another thing that yeah. we should uh, we should keep in mind is that Iran and Venezuela both went to the International uh, Monetary Bank, uh, I'm sorry, the International Monetary Fund, um, to to, um, get a loan. And this is something that the IMF is supposed to be doing, Um, get a loan of $5 billion to help it fight the coronavirus. And uh, the Wall Street Journal said that uh, the U.S. blocked, the U.S. controls the, uh, the IMF, blocked Iran's request and indirectly, if not directly, blocked Venezuela's request as well because the U.S. has led the charge in attacking a lawfully elected uh, president of Venezuela, Nicolas Maduro, and uh, and instead recognizing Juan Guaido and nobody who came out of nowhere and the CIA has been grooming him and other U.S. allies have jumped on board and so the IMF said, well, we don't know if we have jurisdiction because we don't really recognize Maduro as the president of Venezuela and so um, it's it's very likely that the U.S. is behind the uh, IMF's denial of this uh, this loan to Venezuela, which it needs so desperately um, to fight the virus, and that's also economic terrorism. We're at the almost at the 30-minute mark. Uh, is there anything else that you would like to say? We do have additional time if you wanted. Um, yes, I would urge people to uh, write to the White House, write op-eds, write letters to the editor, pressure your Congress members. And people may not want to write op-eds, but a letter to the right. editor is 
not hard to get published. You just peg it to a news story or an opinion piece in your local newspaper and keep it under 150 words. And if your letter doesn't get published, you will help other letters from the same point of view get published because they count up how many letters there are from from each uh, perspective. So there are many things that people can do and joining together and demonstrating maybe it didn't uh, convince your senator in Missouri, but maybe some of the congressional representatives. Um, certainly there was uh, there, there, uh, there was a lot that happened in response to uh, what happened right. in Ferguson. I mean, it really raised, um, oh, yeah. it, it yeah. raised consciousness, led to, to Black Lives Matter, along with other killings of, yeah. uh, of people of color, mainly you know, black definitely. males. And so I, I wouldn't say, well, you know, it was a failure. I think that all of that, we've, we've well, got well, to maintain no. the movement. As Bernie Sanders yeah. said, he's, he's out of the race, but the movement goes on. Right, and I, I, it wasn't a failure. It was just that it fell on deaf ears with Roy Flint. We actually got quite a bit accomplished. Um, right, and, right. You know, once again, and, and again, it is about the movement, no doubt about it. That's something that basically leaders in both parties are having a great difficulty comprehending. Uh, right. But they're going to find out eventually. They are. It's, it's not me or you, it's us. Right. And it's... it's is there anything else you would like to add? Um, I think people need to, you know, well, there is something since I have the platform, and that is that um, I was a Bernie supporter all along, still am, died in the wool, both elections. And uh, here. I, I uh, um, yeah, and I uh, communicate with a lot of people on the left, and there is so much disillusionment among people on the left um, that I am afraid that just as in 2016, a lot of Bernie supporters are either going to sit out the election, um, vote for a third-party candidate, or even some of them uh, who are so critical of Biden because he's such a weak candidate uh, with a less-than-stellar record are going to vote for Trump. Um, and uh, because they're under the illusion that he's more of an isolationist in foreign policy, although he's certainly done his share of bombing and droning since he and killing civilians right. since he came into office. And so I right. think it's really important for people to keep their eye on the ball and look at Trump's record. Look at what he has done. Look at how many people he has hurt. Um, and yes. the bottom line, Janine, is that uh, <laughs> if Trump is reelected, uh, he is going to craft a Supreme Court seven to two right wing majority for decades to come. No more right to right. abortion, no more dreamers, no more right to apply for asylum. And right. any prayer we have of really tackling climate change out the window. And if people want to be responsible for that, then sit it out, uh, vote for uh, a third party candidate or, or vote for Trump. I understand. Well, I, again, I thank you so much. Um, this has been wonderful. Um, like I said, we're at that end point. My, my colleague is going to help edit this and edit some things out. Uh, and hopefully I did this correctly because, again, when it comes to technology, I'm a bit of an idiot. So, um, and that, no, seriously, this is the first time I've done that. So, um, you know, we'll just, and I do thank you for your patience and thank you for appearing, Marjorie. You are truly a national treasure. Thank you so much, Janine. I really appreciate your work and uh, I enjoyed the interview. Oh, thank you so much. I look forward to talking to you again. Bye-bye. Okay. Take good care. Bye-bye. <clears throat>
All right, guys, that is the show for tonight. Thank you so much for tuning in. Um, we will do an extra show this week uh, addressing some of the uh, stuff with Bernie dropping out. And, uh, you know, we'll just uh, keep keeping on. And uh, I'm going to leave you guys with um, with this. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.